0: just getting warmed up with praise and worship because sister tracy started and said hey do we have any eagles fans out there why can't we praise the lord like at an eagles game and i actually wanted to start my sermon by talking to you i have a confession to make you you might know it's been well documented your pastor is a buffalo bills fan some of you already knew that i I know i just lost a lot of respect out there as well (laughs) that's okay that's okay this is who i am i'm all right with that And when I lived in Buffalo, I actually had the opportunity to go to a lot of Buffalo Bills games. And there is something, yeah, keep singing and dancing, let's go. There is a lot that happens at a sporting event that is just this full, joyful experience. It it was really nice, again, of of Sister Tracy to be saying that in the beginning, that some of that energy that we bring to, to a sporting event can be brought to our life of praise and worship as well. And in my experience at some of those Bills games, it wasn't too often because they're never any good. But when you are there and you are joyfully excited about something that happens on the field, along with 73,000 other people, it is a spiritual experience in some ways. There is something bigger, there is something mystical happening in those moments when you are joyfully shouting for your team along with so many other people. I still watch Bill's games alone at home by myself, as if they weren't depressing enough already. (laughs) But on those rare occasions when something good happens, they're 2-0 in case you were wondering, um, it's exciting for me, but it's nowhere near as exciting when you're at the stadium. And I'm sure many of you know this to be true as well. Even if you're not sporting fans going to a concert when you're all singing along, or or those great moments at church when our choir really brings us that joy, when we are singing together, when we are inspired by their voices, something happens when large numbers of people get together with a unified purpose. This morning we're going to be looking at a very strange parable. You, You see on the front of your bulletin, it's called the The parable of the dishonest steward. Oh, that sounds ominous. But as we dig into the themes of this parable, I'm going to be talking about the ways that we are created for community and the importance of relationships in our life. We see some of that happening at sporting events, at concerts. When we gather together around a unified purpose, something bigger happens. And I want to talk to you about this idea this morning. I've titled this sermon, Created for Community. And we'll be looking at Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Please, though, first join me in a word of prayer. May the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Send your living word to walk amongst us now, to challenge our assumptions to set our hearts ablaze, and to make us whole again. Amen. Amen. All right, if you would open those Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And if you are are so able, please rise with me um, in spirit. As we read this together, we rise out of reverence for the gospel being read in our presence. Luke 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man, who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So the man summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, what will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, People may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down and quickly and make it fifty. And then he asked another, How much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And the manager said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Church, this is the good news. It's the gospel of our Lord. Maybe see. It's written in the book. So this is quite the parable that Jesus has offered us this morning. And it can seem on the surface as if Jesus is telling us to be dishonest, to be crafty, to be shrewd, to maybe skim a little off the top here and there. And certainly it seems that a number of our politicians have read this parable as such and have made decisions as such. I won't name names, but we know what we're talking about. But I believe that there's actually a deeper meaning to it. And and as we've talked about many times when it deals with the parables, we have to be careful of not looking at the parable in isolation. Jesus often tells these stories in such a way so that they will unsettle us. If he just told a nice story where you could assume the ending right away, you probably wouldn't learn anything. And also very often we have to be careful because Jesus is offering these parables To a specific audience. He's trying to get through to a specific group of people so that they can really hear what he has to say. And that's certainly the case with our parable here this morning. Jesus isn't telling us to all go and be dishonest and to find wealth in whatever way possible. We obviously know from many other things that Jesus said and did that this would not be the case. So much of Jesus' life is about loving one another, being kind, being caring, and being honest in our dealings. But this parable, this parable was specifically stated as an affront to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, as if you keep reading in chapter 16, you'll hear that they become very upset by what they heard in Jesus' parable. But, But just a little background on this group. The Pharisees were religious leaders, and they were in particular very concerned with the law. They knew the Jewish laws backward and forward. They even have added and written a couple of them themselves in order to try and keep everything in the temple, everything in religious life, nice and neat and orderly. And so the Pharisees often had a tendency of caring much more about keeping all the rules than they did with people. So often the Pharisees would establish laws or insist upon rules as a way of keeping others out, as a way of keeping hold on their own power and authority. And so it's this type of behavior that Jesus is speaking to with this parable of the dishonest manager here today. Because the Pharisees would have heard this parable about someone who lied and cheated, and they would have said, that's against the rules. We can't have anything like that, which is exactly the type of trap that Jesus was trying to set. Pharisees would be so concerned with rules and regulations and dishonesty that they'd miss some of the deeper and broader points taking place here. Just as a reminder, we just heard the reading, but to recount for you exactly what happens you have this dishonest manager who is told, hey buddy, you're gonna get fired. His master has heard that he's not been a really good employee and so he tells him, things aren't gonna work out, we're gonna have to let you go. But before all that takes place, the dishonest manager says, oh my gosh, I'm about to lose my job. I better do something so that I have a way of surviving after I lose my job. And so he comes up with a plan and this is what he says, he comes up with a plan and he says, So that people may welcome me into their homes. This is verse 4. This is his idea. If he's not going to have a job, then he needs to have some friends, some dinner, some way of surviving. This is his crafty little game that he plays. So he goes out and he finds someone who owes his master money and he says, hey, how much do you owe my master? Uh, Cut it in half, make it 50. Oh, hey, you, you owe some things to my master? Here, you're going to really like me for this. I'm cutting it down to 80. And again and again, he does this as a means of building up friendships and relationships. (laughs) Now, this is very similar to the person who is told, hey, we're going to have to let you go. And so they quickly download the whole contact list so that they can start their own company after they get fired, right? It's not what you know, it's who you know, as the saying goes. Jesus is telling this parable, again, as a way to confront the Pharisees' ways of caring more about rules than relationships. And the parable of the dishonest manager tells us a story about a person who breaks some rules in an effort to build relationships. The problem is that the Pharisees don't care about people. Their rules are meant to keep others out. Their rules are meant to keep themselves in power. Their way of life doesn't value relationships or community. And this is what Jesus is calling Because, as we know and as we can see, Jesus cared a lot about relationships and community. Nearly everything in Jesus' life points to this essential truth that being with other people, being in relationship with other people, is of the utmost importance. Think about it, think about it. Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't need anyone to help him do his ministry, and yet he called 12 disciples, didn't he? And the scriptures tell us that there were actually even more followers who he also commissioned and sent out at different time periods. And then additionally, Jesus spent so much of his ministry simply welcoming in people who had been shunned by society. The Pharisees often got mad at Jesus because he was always eating with sinners and welcoming those who the Pharisees thought were breaking all the rules. And then on top of that when you look carefully at the healing miracles of Jesus, you notice that there's a relational element to that as well. Because in those days, if you were sick, if you were a leper, for example, you had to live outside the community. And when Jesus comes along and heals these people, he's not only restoring their health, he's restoring them to a role within society. They're welcomed back in. They're able to be in relationship with others again because they're no longer shunned and put to the side. And then, of course, finally, Jesus, you might be thinking, "You're like, but pastor, Jesus was always going off by himself, too. You say he valued relationships. Then why was he always climbing up a mountain to be by himself? Well, even that was about his relationship with God, wasn't it? Jesus knew that in order to be in proper relationship with others at that time, he needed to also be in good relationship with God, his father above So we see again and again, this theme in Jesus's ministry, that relationships and community are what matters. And this is exactly the point he's trying to convey to the Pharisees with this strange parable about a dishonest manager. Relationships are where you have to put your value. Now, I tell you this a lot in my sermons about the ways that Jesus kind of guides us and leads us. See we often focus when it comes to Jesus on this idea of, Jesus is what's gonna get me to heaven when I die. And that's good, that's important. But what we miss when we focus on that is all the ways that Jesus is trying to teach us how to live right now. Jesus is trying to make us safe and whole right now. And this message about relationships is also on that theme. Jesus knows that the best way for us to live is in community with one another. Just as a bird has to fly and a fish has to swim, human beings have to be in relationship with one another. And that's hard work, isn't it? Can I get an amen on that one? That is not an easy task. We are all difficult in our own peculiar ways, aren't we? And we all want it our way. And society tells us that that's what should matter. Have it your way at Burger King and everywhere else as well, right? Being in a relationship is absolutely hard work. And yet it is the essential work of being human. God created humans in such a way so that we would long to be together. And so that things would light up when we are in community with one another. It's what I was talking to you about at the very beginning. Something spiritual, something mystical happens when you're with 73,000 other people all cheering for the same sports team. Something powerful happens when we all sing songs together on a Sunday morning and the music takes us away. There is another level to it. And God knew this from the very beginning. Think back to when God created Abraham, the very first, or Adam, Adam. The very first thing that God says after he creates Adam is, oh, it's, it's not good for man to be alone. This is one of the first insights God has. And that's because we were all created to be with other people. It goes deeper than that. As you look throughout the, the course of human history, it's just a continual story of the ways that people gather together as community in different ways. There's something hardwired within all of us that needs to be with other people. As difficult and as messy as that can be, we were created for community. Science has begun to figure this out. I I mentioned this, I think, at a Bible study once upon a time, so some of you might have heard this before. But if you look at the history of the music industry, every 10 years or so, there comes along a musical group that sings in five-part harmony and these five-part harmonies science has discovered something within the human brain kind of lights up we can't resist the singing in harmony sure a singer songwriter a soloist is great but when you have those layers those multiple human voices working together as a larger whole there's something irresistible about that and so you see this right in the 70s it was the jackson five and then in the 80s we had new kids on the block and then in the 90s, you had a whole bunch. You had Backstreet Boys, Sync, O-Town, 98 Degrees. All of these singing in five-part harmony. In the early 2000s, you had One Direction. Now I know, none of these are very good bands. And yet they were all largely successful. Their songs were oftentimes about nothing at all. And no one could resist it. Because the music industry figured out if we get five okay singers together and we have them sing in five-part harmony, the masses won't be able to turn away. We were created for community church. There is a biological something within each of us that needs to be in relationship with others. And now I know that this is true because of everything I've mentioned, but also as I look back at the story of my own life. I have had multiple opportunities to be in intense Christian community at various points. Sometimes it was a retreat as I was growing up as a high school youth or a week at summer camp. Um, And then as I grew older, there were a couple of study abroad trips I did in college. And every time along the way, when I had the opportunity to be with another group of people and to just really care about one another to pray together to support each other through our struggles it was every single time some of the moments in my life when i felt closest to god as well that's just the thing is that we are hardwired to need to be with other people and yet in the same sense when we are in true life-giving community together we will also see the face of god among us i know this to be true because it's happened again and again and again And I know this to be true because the scriptures tell us, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. And so we have all this data showing us just how important community is. And yet the struggle is that so often we end up like the Pharisees, don't we? We end up as individuals who want to have it our way. We want to have it follow our rules. We want to be in control and in power. And oftentimes we will prioritize that over being in community with others. Because like we said, relationships are difficult. And it's much easier to get mad at that person and to gossip about them behind their back. And to insist that you are in the right and they are in the wrong. Than it is to humble yourself. And to meet halfway in order to sustain relationship and community. The truth is, is that churches themselves often fall apart because we act like the Pharisees. We insist on, or you have one group that insists on things being this way, and another group that insists on things being this way. And the fact of the matter is, neither of these ways are wrong or bad. It's okay to have preferences. And in fact, God doesn't want us all to be the same. But what's troubling and what's difficult is when we think that our preference Is more important than the community. And so we need to be united and we need to be vigilant about our unity as a church. It's okay to have disagreements and preferences. But at the end of the day, we were created church for community. We were created to be together and to hold this as the first and foremost commitment of our life as a church of God in Christ. And so, this year at Reformation, we've been continually trying to, to, to commit to this theme, right? Our theme of know love and show love is all about relationships. Our, our relationship with God, knowing that we're loved. Our relationship with one another, showing love to each other. This has been our theme because that's what matters most. We're trying to focus on the key points and not get caught up in all the disagreements and things that can pull us apart. Because here's a story, church. God sent Jesus in order to be in relationship with us. God sent Jesus to show us, as we've talked about, the importance of relationships. God sent Jesus to remind us that rules and preferences and our need for control are not more important than community and relationship. God sent Jesus to die for us, to go to the grave for us, so that there would be no place where we could be separated from our relationship with God. It's all about relationships, church. I don't know what else you're trying to say is more important today or what else I might be trying to say, but we need to remind one another again and again that we were created for community, that we were created to be together, and that lives at the heart of who we are as human beings and who we are as a church. And we need to remember, above all else, God will not rest until all of humanity is united under his banner of love and mercy. God's work is always about relationship and bringing all of creation into relationship again. Amen.